Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I'm your host, Alex Danton, and we're excited to announce that we're bringing the Cafe Bitcoin conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Michael Saylor, Len Alden, Corey Clipston, Greg Foss, Tomer Strohlight, and many others in the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode. You can join us live on Twitter Spaces Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern every morning to become part of the conversation yourself. Thanks again. We look forward to bringing you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. All right. All right. Good morning to all you Cafe Bitcoiners out there. Good morning, Dom Bay. Good morning, Peter, Ant, Jacob. How's everybody doing today? Morning, Alex. Morning, everybody. Is it Friday? <clears throat> Are you retired? I don't know. I, I woke up feeling like Mitch McConnell this morning. How does Mitch McConnell feel? I don't. I don't know. Oh, you didn't. You didn't see his mini stroke episode at the podium yesterday. Dude literally had a mini stroke at the podium yesterday. He was mid sentence. He just stopped talking and just stared and had to be walked away from the podium. It was. It was actually a little frightful. That's sad. We got to get younger people in office. This is getting a little bit out of control. I, I was actually thinking that Brad Sherman may have had a uh, a mini stroke as well when he mispronounced Satoshi Nakamoto's name. No, Brad Sherman's just an idiot. We have the he clip. Does, In fact, does, we should play it. Oops. We, uh, we are told that cryptocurrency is very innovative. Look at the incredible financial innovation of Enron and WorldCom and reflect on the fact that I don't believe that uh, uh, Saratoshi Nagamoto was uh, innovative. Uh, who now? Saratoshi Nagamoto. Uh, man. Saratoshi Nagamoto. I think we should concentrate on his idea that it's not innovative. I mean, you don't have to like it. You don't have to um, agree with, um, you know, with the, the the features and and properties of Bitcoin. That's fine. But to say it's not innovative, come on. Well, he said, I think we should reflect on the something along the lines of the the fact that I don't think Saratoshi Nagamoto is very innovative. I don't know what this guy's smoking, but it, he's a, he's a fair representation of a lot of people. I think, uh, unfortunately legislators who write the laws of our nation, there's a, there's a good bit of ignorance out there. That, that's because they don't have any incentive to, um, to think otherwise, right? Since they're so close to the printer and and profiting, profiting off of the current system, 
I orange pilled the Xfinity technician that came over the other day. I think it was Tuesday. Yeah, it was Tuesday morning. Young kid actually like really understood what the hell was going on in the world and really amazed me. You know, I mean, he, he understood what money was. He, he understood that he wasn't really able to save very well, even though he has a, a you know, a, a retirement plan. And he understood kind of this long term, excuse me, a long time preference, you know, and he was he was anyways, it was really a really, really good conversation. And what he said to me at some point was he goes, well, you know, maybe if I just took the money that I spent at the bar and put it into Bitcoin instead. And I said, because of my stack chain experience, because what I do now is um, I DCA the number of miles that I ride my bike each day. And I said to him, I said, well, why don't you do this? When you go to the bar and you buy a beer, then you can go ahead and just buy Bitcoin at the same time for the same amount. You can just do that over and over. He goes, well, how do I do that? And so I showed him Strike. Um, and he was like, oh, wow, this is really easy. I showed him moon wallet he i mean these, these younger people i think he was in his early 20s these younger people get that they are so digitally native they get it right away they understand the technology they they are comfortable with the technology and you know i ended up giving him my phone number and said hey if you got any questions in the future you know feel free to call I love that, man. Turn it into a drinking game. I'm over here trying to stack as we speak, actually, because <clears throat> I used the Bitcoin. Once. I used the Bitcoin company yesterday, and I got a an Amazon gift card, and I got my. <clears throat> I think it's 1.3 percent or 1.5 percent back in Sats because I had to get something off of Amazon. But that's like my go-to way and all all that stuff now. I don't if if I'm gonna buy anything anywhere that I'm able to uh, pay with a gift card that I get sats back, that's that's the go-to. Good morning, Tomer. How you doing? You know, we have a guy on Stack Chain. Alex that's, we have a guy on Stack Chain that, that stacks his uh, rewards from um, uh, from Bitcoin cards. Wait, what do you mean he stacks his rewards from Bitcoin cards? Um, he uses Fold and he does the he does the spinning the wheel thing. And anytime he gets anytime he gets um, rewards, he has basically converted cuck bucks into um, into sats, right? And so we've determined that you know because that's what Stack Chain is about. It's about smash buying. Um, we're using cuck bucks and converting them into sats. And so he collects all of his uh, rewards and then posts them on chain so that eventually they will um, be applied to uh, a block. It's just, it's just really cool. I, I'll, I'll, I'll DM you. A, all right. So he's a, not a like, he's not like doing another stack every time he gets rewards. He's just posting his rewards as a stack. As a contribution towards what he does is he has a he has a thread of his of his rewards and it's just it's just a continuous thread it's probably i don't know it, it's it's probably hundreds of of replies long by now 
Um, and then he keeps a running total going. And when he reaches um, the total he's trying to get to, uh, he will then um, post that as a block. I know, mind blown, right? Very cool. All right. Welcome to Cafe Bitcoin to everyone who's joining us. Our mission for this show is to provide the signal in a sea of noise and teach the other 7 billion people on this planet why there is hope because of this bright orange future that we call Bitcoin. Today, we're going to be talking about Blockchain Regulatory Certainty Act, other Bitcoin news. Later today, we have got American HODL coming on to tell us some cool OG Bitcoiner stories. So here's a little piece of news that I thought was interesting. Apparently, the United States Department of Justice is going to drop campaign finance charges against SBF. <laughs> what? I don't think anybody is surprised by this, right? Does that imply clawbacks are coming from the donations that he made? Well, it, it, I think it implies that they're not going to charge him criminally for whatever shenanigans were going on there with him donating. So you got to start asking the question, well, who is he donating to that uh, all of a sudden the Department of Justice is backpedaling on this? I mean, maybe I'm just being cynical. Talk to me. Am I being cynical or am I being unreasonable here? No, there, there's, a, there's a light link there between the people who appoint uh, those positions and, and the party that received uh, donations for sure. Isn't this exactly what uh, RFK was talking about in uh, that, that space? Or that was at least part of what he was talking about, about regulatory agencies and how they're... they're um, they're all in the pockets of uh, the politicians or the, actually he was saying they're in the pockets of the corporations, but same difference, right? Actually, I think he was saying, he was saying that they're in such control that they basically pull the strings of the politician, these agencies, but it's, I mean, it, it's, it sounds pretty bad on the surface of it, right? Like here's a guy who presumably has gotten made all these ill-gotten, all these ill-gotten gains through massive fraud. He's donated this money, some of this money from these proceeds to politicians and it's all right. Like it, but it's clearly not all right. So if the money should be given back and charges should be laid, would seem to be on the surface, the right course of action. And if charges are getting dropped, um, it's on, it, it seems likely then that people might not also be returning the money that was ill gotten in the first and and will be people or politicians receive donations to get into the ballot or so just all reeks. I mean the danger of this is somebody could donate uh, ill-gotten gains to a campaign on purpose to sabotage a candidate, I suppose. But it it certainly doesn't look good on its face, does it? So, so candidates have the, the good ones have teams that will reject or ban donations from certain types of people, like Obama when he ran in two thousand eight. He they banned donations from federal lobbyists. 
and they enforced it as far as I could tell. Okay, but this is at a policy level with the with the team running the campaign. Is that what you're correct, saying? Correct. Yeah, it comes from the top. The candidate has to do it. Yeah. So yes, which would make sense, right? Because you don't want to get seen to be uh, supported by people that would create a political problem later. So if Terrence is correct, and I, it sounds plausible, this is true, then they would have theoretically vetted this guy, right? I mean, well, they he did have a video showing time. how he ate zucchini, right? So, he, and what a nice guy he was. He may not have vetted him too carefully, but it, you, you mean vetted him like after, Tom Brady? I, I'm just saying this is all after the fact now, right? Like it, it yeah. it's today. We know we know what he's done, right? So forget at the time that he made the donations. Why why are they dropping charges? And I haven't like I haven't heard the explanation as to why. But you know, so I I read I I got it. I, I have the explanation. It's basically according the prosecutors in the U.S. when they sought extradition, allegedly they thought it was for all these counts, including um, campaign donation, like illegal campaign donations or whatever. And the and then Sam Bankman Free he obviously has good lawyers, right? All the rich people, rich corporations when they get the court they have really good lawyers so his lawyers his defense team was saying no but the bermuda the government of bermuda did not extradite agree to extradite based on this count of illegal campaign donation and so they asked the justice department went back to the government of bermuda and said didn't you didn't you or whatever they said didn't you um extradite based in part because of the illegal campaign donation charge. And the government Bermuda said no. And because we have a treaty with them, they had to drop the charge. So it's, a, it's whether so it sounds like the fuck up. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it's, a it's a technicality, right? It's like we, yeah. you can't charge yeah. him for a crime that he wasn't extradited for by treaty. And so, hold on. so this is, it, hold on. Yeah. It's not a technicality. He gave $400 million to the, to the Bohemian government. That's not a technicality. It's a fucking bribe. It's a bribe. Yeah. yeah. But, but, but also, it, so yes, but also if you think about it, either the Department of Justice screwed up in their haste or, or oversight or just being the government, or they intentionally did not make it clear to Bermuda, so the Bermuda government could say, oh yeah, you know what? Yeah, we, we were extraditing based on the other stuff. We didn't think we were extraditing based on campaign donations, but it's all pretty corrupt. I, I do wonder, just one more point, I do wonder why so many politicians failed to return the cash when the allegations came out or, and, you know, to, um, to the estate instead of being like, oh, we just donated it or keep it or be silent. But now maybe we know why. Maybe they maybe they kind of knew or suspected this might happen. Or potentially, Terrence, some of them may have already spent it on uh, campaign stuff. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. But, but you know, they're, they're all... Okay, so politicians in D.C., they're always raising money all the time. So, yeah, the money might be gone, but they're getting money in. And it's not like yeah, they're, they're, they're like a hedge fund that never stops raising. 
they're continually yeah. raising. Maybe, yeah. They're, 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 and even though he gave a lot, right? Each politician, you're limited in how much you can give to each politician by law. So they 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 should have had the money come in to return to the estate if they wanted to. Uh, I think there was one politician who I don't really like that. Beto or whatever, the guy in Texas who ran for president kept losing, lost like Senate races and whatever. He returned, I think, the donation and nobody else as far as I can tell. Once you have the money, maybe you do a little a little deeper dive on the uh, due diligence of whether or not you can keep it versus uh, whether or not you can just get it. And they it, did the due diligence and saw the treaty and went, oh, no, he doesn't. Yeah, we don't have to do that. We don't. Yeah. Can you keep it? And also, should you keep it? I, I understand that, you know, some people want to wait for final non-appealable, but if you're a politician, your whole thing is your reputation and image, then maybe they should be returning. I'm just, just not disappointed, but it's just like but another that would sign be, that That would be all the are. Bitcoiner politicians, right? That's true. Speaking of money and uh, politicians, the, you know, I had a good conversation with, I think it was David from Bitcoin magazine, just on a thread. And, you know, I think it's interesting. I know RFK had a pretty cool space yesterday. I tuned in some very great points, but anytime I try to bring up the, um, the, the huge gap in fundraising dollars between candidates, it's kind of taken as like a negative offense against RFK when in actuality, it's not at all. It's, it's more to put things in perspective as to like what mountains need to be climbed, you know, because I think when folks kind of tweet out like, Hey, RFK has a chance the, you know, this is a winnable thing that has to be paired with the dollar amounts that have to be overcome. Like it should also be paired with, Hey, he can win with, he has a great message, but the you know leading democratic presidential candidate raised 172 million dollars in three months compared to you know four to six million raised by rfk so if 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 elections in 2024 are just more of a marketing campaign uh competition as opposed to like let's sort out the truth and learn people's platform stances then those dollars matter tremendously and i'm not saying it to you know detract hope from rfk it's more of a like, Hey, here's, here's the mountain that needs to be climbed. So it's like, it's, it's contributions need to start like firing. I would, I would generally agree with that. I mean, obviously contributions or dollar amounts translate into better research and more, <laughs> more ads, but, um, I guess what RFK does have going for him is that he's actually like kind of getting a leg into, uh, uh some of these, you know, podcasts and 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 you know spaces and stuff that have pretty wide audiences so you know going on joe rogan for example like that that's something that you know no amount of ad dollars can really buy right and joe rogan's not having fucking biden on anytime soon <laughs> I mean, maybe but like that'd be a disaster so you know i mean there are some things that i guess he's got going from that that aren't just purely campaign you know dollars related no, for sure. And, and again, I always use that example of like, you know, the, I feel like the presidential elections become more, more similar to if Burger King and McDonald's were competing 
um, say a road trip to see which place you'd stop at, you know, who can get you to stop at Burger King versus McDonald's. And so in that sense, it's just a battle of who can, who can imprint in your brain 15 to 25 times the image and the logo and to, this is who you need to roll with more than check our menu out. Uh, we have a very great new item that's fresh. But but you're right, Wicked. He, he does have some opportunities on other, other platforms. We know that when the Democratic stuff comes out, they roll like a major roster of celebrity endorsements, right? Like Taylor, uh, Taylor Swift endorsed Biden in 2020. I'm sure she would roll with the with the you know presidential uh, with the Democrats in 2024. And so those also have tremendous influence for like young people who are completely disengaged from any kind of like factual conversation. They're just like, yep, okay. They just see a hundred different things. So Dom, it's really cool having you up here because as a guy that has worked in union leadership, you've probably been pretty close to to seeing how the sausage is made with a lot of this kind of stuff. So thanks for hanging out, man. Do appreciate the perspectives. I want to welcome up and say good morning to uh, Rizzo. How you doing? Been a little bit. What's up, guys? Yeah, it's been a while. Enjoying, enjoying the summer. Hope you guys are staying cool. Yeah, man. Doing the doing the thing with the with the central air every day. Well, our best was it Dom that was talking just just then. Yeah, Dom Bay. Dom was the guy for if you don't know Rizzo. Dom was the guy that basically uh, we met him because uh, when we were doing Pacific Bitcoin, one of our guys dove in to the surf. He thought it was surf, and it was really shallow, and he basically broke his neck right there on the spot. And Dom happened to be walking by. Dom's a former firefighter, or is a firefighter, I should say. Um, and since then, has been doing all kinds of work in the Bitcoin space. He got his union to buy Bitcoin, allocate coin. He's out there writing papers and doing shows with the likes of Hoffa and and uh, Greg Foss to kind of spearhead Bitcoin adoption in the in the union space, which I think is really cool. Nice, man. Well, I just gave a follow and uh, appreciate all the work. Uh, yeah, I definitely agree with you on the presidential situation. I mean, I think that the RFK case is overstated. Um, you know, I think the best hope that RFK has is to run as a third party candidate. I think that's that's probably the only way he becomes part of the mainstream conversation. I think you're right about the fundraising gap. I mean, I don't know. I think Guy Swan brought up a good point on this. Like he, um, maybe this was at the Bitcoin conference, but you know, he was essentially saying that you know this is the pattern you see: kind of these candidates get really big on social media, but then they can't you know break into the mainstream media, and that just kind of limits their reach. Um, so we'll see. I don't know. I mean, an RFK third-party candidacy would would really shake up the system. Um, you know, if he's willing to go as an independent, and I don't really see why he wouldn't, right? I think the likely scenario is the Dems just won't debate him uh, and then he just goes to the third party. Um, and in that case, I mean, I think you have an interesting election at that point. There would have to be debates though, right? Like if you had... No, I'm pretty sure there doesn't. Like, I mean, the Democratic, I feel like, because like, the Democratic uh, Party like runs the conventions. I, I mean, there might be some like vote threshold, but I don't know. And I guess, no, what I was getting at is, is that uh, if, if, for example, he he wasn't nominated as the Democrats' 
sort of front-running candidate. You're saying in the actual election, the general election, there'd be the debates. Yeah, and the general, that's the only way for him to get into the debates is in the general election. I think, like, there's no chance of him being a part of any primary debate uh, at all. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, just look what happened to Bernie. I mean, there's just no, and then Bernie was a legitimate, you know, on the ballot candidate i mean i, I just don't think rfk is going to get better treatment here uh, i think you know if he really wants to to do this you know to like run as a third party uh get your 10 percent, and then uh, you know kind of see what happens you know i mean this happens in other countries right there's more than two parties so you because boss, he's complaining right. because he's complaining about uh, blackrock's uh, interest in pharmaceuticals and and other uh, entities that they're going to uh nix him from uh, media oh i mean i think they already have <laughs> i mean you know you can look at his uh decline conference stuff was pretty sparsely covered right and then he made like that faux pas at the expense dinner thing the classic like politician <laughs> dinner faux pas uh and that was like widely covered on like everything you know i don't know it's just like how it is right i mean i think that but i do think that there is a the what i was trying to say is that there was like the social media mainstream media divide and I think, like, the reality is, like, social media just isn't influential enough to influence elections. Like, the reality is, like, whoever's on ABC News, like, every night, like, that's the person who's going to get 100 million votes. Like, it's, uh, you know, as much as we want to think that, like, RFK getting all these tweets and, you know, uh, doing, like, so much impressions there really matters. Like, I just think it's, uh, you know, the, the mainstream media apparatus is just much bigger at this point. Um, I think that's just been the lesson in the previous elections where you've seen Andrew Yang and Bernie and like, you know, the internet candidates. It's like the internet candidates versus the TV candidates. Yeah, except for maybe Trump and Obama. But yeah. Yeah, I would, yeah, I agree with that. Um, but, you know, they were well-funded and, you know, Obama ran yeah. at a time where, like, there was no incumbent running, right? So he had a bit more of a he, level he playing. Hillary, he may as well have been an incumbent. That, that was, like, pretty amazing. Oh, and you remember all no the stuff that Hillary threw at Obama. I mean, all the Republican stuff that came later with McCain was just basically just all the stuff that Hillary had done, <laughs> done prior. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I do remember McCain Palin leading Obama Biden um, by significant margin at some point, but then we had Lehman blow up and it was over for Republicans because they blamed Bush because he was president when Lehman imploded and people are sick of the Iraq war. But, and um, that's the thing. The thing is right, the Dems yeah. just went on the youth vote. I mean, that's the, uh, you know, that's the thing with the Democrats is they have to excite the youth vote or like rely on the public being like somewhat apathetic, right? Like, so. Yeah. And then both parties suck. But yeah, um, in terms of like third party candidates, I think Ross Perot did pretty well at 92. Yeah, he got like 10% yeah. of the vote. I'm pretty sure like Clinton. 8.2 like, in 96. And then I think in 92 it did better, but I'm trying to find the numbers. I think it I was, think it was like better 10%. than 10. Might have been a little bit higher. I think it was around 10%. I don't think anybody... It's any 19. 19% of the popular vote. That's a lot. And he was a little... He was he had a horrible running mate. He was portrayed as a little bit crazy. But he was like... Uh, he did like direct-to-TV infomercials, right? Like he bought like a bunch of like 19... Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I'm pretty he was sure on like the that's what it was. That he had like... He was on the debate stage. 
Yeah, but I think his path to like uh, popularity was like he bought like late night TV programming on like uh, those channels. Okay. So like he would basically do like like the 12 a.m. to like 3 a.m. thing and he would just like run. I, I think this is what it was. I don't I don't remember, but I, I remember there's like a Saturday Night Live that like his moves. So one fifth of the country are are nocturnal and they stay up and, <laughs> and watch late night television. And he got all of them basically. Well, I think like back yeah. then there wasn't really like you know the way what could you have really done. And I think like that was like the QVC era, like where that was like you know cable was like kind of a new thing. Uh, I don't know. It's like a bit of speculation, but I think I remember there being like he had like a novel media strategy like behind him that was not you know uh, like just what the other candidates were doing. 3, 3 a.m. in the morning, it's like, I bought a snake light and I figured out who I'm <laughs> vote for for president. <laughs> I mean, certain demographics wake up at that time. First, second in the morning. Did be talking about the deficit popular? That was pretty amazing. So. Rodin? Yeah. I thought we had a surplus during the Clinton years. Is that not? No, no, no. The, this was in 90. So hold on. When did Clinton get elected? Yeah, Clinton got elected in '92. So this is before before the surplus, right? Yeah, that that's you know what I was was thinking about like the surplus thing is like not that maybe what twenty years ago the government actually had like a net net monetary balance. Nobody does that anymore, Rizzo. That's so out of fashion, bro. Yeah, just what. What I got got me thinking about this thing that you said, Rizzo, is uh, like JFK Jr. was basically out there saying that that podcasts are going to determine who the next president is. And what you're saying is, nope, that's just not going to happen. It is mainstream media. I think, uh, and, I think it's too early. I think like at some point there'll be an inflection point where most more people are on social media about traditional media. I just don't, I don't think it's that. So in other words. It, is it fair to say the boomers have to all die off before the internet decides I keep saying the it. This is generational warfare. I mean, the, I will literally vote the next election for anyone who does not put a boomer candidate up. That was my resolu- that was my realization maybe like 12 months ago is that, you know, COVID basically was, you know, the boomers kind of getting together and then realizing that they had a government monopoly, like a monopoly on the election stuff. And they have just, they've just robbed the younger generations like that. And that that's what yeah. happened. There you, you have know, it. You know, like Rizzo, Rizzo is a single-issue like, voter, and it can't be a boomer. Rizzo, you know I can hear you, right? <laughs> Are you writing? You're hiding behind the nam. What? Yeah, I always forget Peter's a boomer because he's got that young avatar and a young voice. That's Roy Batty, That's dude. not, that's that's not, not young, young, dude. That guy's ancient, bro. He looks young, motherfuckers. Think I know who that is? The problem with the youth vote primarily is that it doesn't vote in primaries. And if you don't vote in primaries, yeah. the dominant voting block will be seniors. So they're, they're, it's almost impossible unless you have a change of the dynamics in the primary system. Like Obama kind of brought some of this with his youth vote surge with the last several elections, particularly 2020, youth vote fell off dramatically. So you have it dominated by uh, minorities in the Democratic Party. And in the Republican Party, it's dominated by those over 55. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that, Reed. But like, that's, you know, that's generally the the root of the issue, I think, is that as long as the, as long as the boomers are the ruling class, I just don't think anything changes for, 
any of the other generations. I mean, that, that's essentially what the COVID situation was, which is why in like, you know, El Salvador or wherever, where they have younger presidents, like, you know, there was never a lockdown. Like, I don't think there would have been lockdowns, like if there were younger people in charge of the government, like that was entirely a kind of like COVID boomer thing. They were scared. Well, they were scared, but they were able to use their fear to weaponize the political apparatus. I mean, that was, that was the lesson there. I don't think that matters that much um, who the, how young the president is. I think it's more um, the power structure, right? So like when how he had Obama, when he had Obama get elected, hold on, I'm talking, Rizzo. Oh, sorry. I've been talking a lot and you've been wrong on um, Clinton and the surplus. You've been wrong on Pro's 10%. So let me just say a couple of things. I, I respect you, but to be honest, like just don't, don't take over. So, so real quick, um, basically, like, Obama was supposed to be hope and change, but because of the power structure with, like, banks, he didn't go after anybody on Wall Street. Zero, right? Oh, we must move on, avoid a depression, focus on the future, right? Zero people on Wall Street were prosecuted. That was ridiculous. And then he was doing things that, um, working with Big Pharma, whatever the fuck he did with Obamacare, which had some good things in it, had some bad things in it. I don't think it was extreme one way or the other, but it wasn't the hope and change that people thought we were getting. And then I guess he got Osama and not much else. He did avoid a depression. So I, my main point is until you change the power structure, it's the incentives that F things up. It's not like who's president. So as long as you have this two-party, uniparty system where the rich get richer and banks, uh, pharma, big pharma, and the billionaires control things, right? Because they're the ones picking who gets to vote for president. They decide, along with, you know, people who are very active, they, they decide who you pick from at the primaries and general elections. It's already kind of decided among who's like acceptable. They'll keep RFK from being acceptable, I predict. All right, I'm going to add one thing and then, but 96, by the way, 96 years old. I'm going to add one thing and then let Rizzo respond to that if he wants to. Uh, And that is, Rizzo, we do appreciate you being here today, man. We haven't seen you in a long time. Uh, Do love it when you do drop in and hang out. So Terrence came at you a little hard right there. So I'm apologizing on behalf of everybody. I went to the the emojis. It's all good. It's all good. Appreciate it. You know, uh, was uh, into the combo. Uh, yeah, nothing really to add there. I mean, I think that's a good read on the situation. Um, uh, just for people who are curious, the RFK Jr., he's 69 years old. So no, no spring chicken. There needs yeah, to be like, a GFY emoji. <laughs> I'd like to go back real quick. So, it, you know, what's interesting, and this is, I mean, let's go back. Yeah, go back to 92. Um, I just, there's a one-hour one documentary, if you guys are interested, called Spin. And it was, it, it goes back to, remember 92, this is the first time we're coming into like this 24 seven CNN, um, news coverage, all of this, but they, it, it shows how it really changed the landscape on how the campaigns were run and the information they could get. I'll say what's really, um, fascinating is since 92, um, the, the ones who, um, I wouldn't say screwed, the ones who were always fighting those third parties were, were the Republicans you had, you had, you know, Perot. You had Ron Paul. So any success they had was usually to the detriment 
of the Republicans. The Democrats had always done a good job of, look, once we have a Democratic candidate, no one else is running as a third party. So everything was always the Republicans fighting that third party. And this is why I think it's that enters on RFK. Uh, I, I, you know, you know, well, look, look back first, go back to Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, man, he, he played that system just right, man. He had him scared. He, he, he was drumming up a lot of support. He threatens to go independent. I don't know what kind of backdoor deals he cut, but I'm sure he got a lot just to, you know, right before everything is going to start, he goes away for a bit. Uh, but when it comes to RFK, uh, yeah, guess what? There's not going to be any debates uh, during the primary. There's no way they can put him on stage with Biden. Uh, absolute, just total, um, you know, take him to the woodshed. Now, after that, man, that's where it gets interesting because he, he's the kind of guy, if his rhetoric is true, okay, everything he's talking about, you know, his uncle, his father, um, everything going on. And this is all Bitcoin aside. Let's take that out of the equation. This could be a legitimate, a legitimate third party candidate that would take a very hefty amount of votes. From the Democratic side. How's he going to get on the ballot? How would he get on well, the ballot? That's what I don't know. That's what I don't know. The answer friend. is it's going to be extremely difficult. Oh, they'll make it difficult for sure. But the point for is, example, this would be the first time. Where, where, I live, where I live in Illinois, he's going to have to get about 15 times the signatures of the Democratic candidate from an operation in Illinois, which is non-existent. And you have to get them from registered voters who are neither Democrats nor Republicans voting in the primary. So you have to go out and target people that did not vote in the primary. By the way, there's also something in Illinois called the sore losers law. And this is in many states where if he runs in the Democratic primary and he loses, he's banned from running as an independent. So that the sore loser law is applicable, I think, in 15 states. So if he loses the Democratic primary, he's not going to be on the ballot in those 15 states. This, this kind of thing is why I've said this on the previous space, and I want to make sure I'm not detracting any kind of like hope and optimism towards RFK. But I think one of the biggest opportunities like Bitcoin has in the upcoming election, again, is identifying battleground states and battleground districts ahead of the election and then targeting, you know, trying to orange pill those people in those districts. Because then it puts Bitcoin on the forefront of, of an issue for all candidates in a very key targeted area that has to be addressed by all people that are running. Uh, and again, like that, that would be, I think that's another opportunity. Like, um, you know, again, it's hard because Bitcoin doesn't have a centralized, for, for the better, right? It's a good thing that there's no centralized, you know, degenerate party that's kind of like, trying to influence stuff, but just from a peer to peer point, identifying Bitcoiners in those districts of the battleground states would make it a very prevalent issue. And I think be very advantageous in, in many ways, more than attaching, you know, all hopes and dreams to, to one candidate. Speaking of, wasn't there some positive legislation? Uh, proposed in the Senate or passed through the Finance Committee in the Senate about um, um, having it so that minors, devs, and other people aren't considered to be uh, money changers or exchanges? Yeah, that's 
Actually, a really good topic. I'm glad you brought that up. So Blockchain Regulatory Certainty Act is um, just passed out of the financial committee. And so the basics on it is, is that it clarifies that being a minor or a wallet provider doesn't automatically make you a money transmitter. And that's, uh, I think that that this is a good thing. I know that not everybody is super excited about the fact that they're making more laws around Bitcoin, but I think that this is positive. What are you guys' thoughts on this? Go ahead, Rizzo. Just jump in there. Was there a reason that that's getting passed as like a law? Because I mean, from what I remember back in 2013, I mean, FinCEN came out and they... The guidance at that time was that essentially like software wallets, miners and developers were all, you know, and miners also were not money transmitters. So what is the, actually I haven't seen that legislation. What does the legislation do? And is it like useful? Because like, I, I feel like that's been, there's like a pretty like large amount of precedent on that. Doesn't it clarify and codify things by putting it into law versus it being policy? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, so that's that's yeah. out of my pay grade. But I, I mean, I think that uh, I'm not sure you need an act of Congress on that. Um, but I mean, it would be nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. more clarity the better. Well, what Congress does have the power to do is regulate the money, right? <clears throat> so if they're basically by an act of Congress saying that this is not subject to um, money transmitter licenses. I don't know if that's necessarily a good or a bad thing. I mean, in, in the short term, it might be a good thing because if you're a mining company or a wallet provider, obviously, do you want to have to go out and get a whole bunch of money transmitter licenses to do business? But the flip side of that is... I don't know. Does that mean it's not, is there, are they saying it's not money and they're codifying that into law? I don't know. Joe, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah. So the, first of all, the, the comment about FinCEN, that, that's different from the requirements of Congress, how it's treated for tax purposes or their, um, their particular, uh, treatment under various other sections of the code of federal regulations. So just because one body or regulatory authority says one thing doesn't mean that it takes out of the code for every other aspect of the government, which treats money transmitters with heightened scrutiny. Um, but just to be clear, you know, the, the act that was pa passed is far broader than this, that it's like called the fit for the 21st century act. And it provides a framework for registration framework for registering altcoins. It delineates what are commodities, what are securities. It gives a path for either CFTC or the SEC to sort of grant a green light, streamlined approval process. So it's kind of a more of an omnibus bill uh, that uh, proposes a broad framework for handling digital assets. It's not merely the money transmitter issue. And if passed, um, you know, you can see things as a good thing or bad thing. It would potentially streamline the ability to launch, deploy, um, and register for trading in on US-based exchanges, um, altcoins. It, it's a, it's a very pro crypto bill. I mean, it was, it was, it's championed by some of the top crypto lobbyists on the hill. Anybody else have any thoughts on this? Tomer, 
you have any thoughts? Um, no, I, I think, I think like, I'm not, I'm certainly not an expert in this field. When we're ready to change the subject, I have thoughts on other things. Nothing wanted to lose. All right. Any final comments on this topic? All right. On we go. Rosetta, did you have something? Oh, no, no. I'm, uh, I'm good. I think my mic came off. Liza. All right. All right. Next up. So Wicked just put out a new video. I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was actually worth mentioning um, live. And he tweeted at it. I'm going to let him give context and explain what the hell it all means. But his tweet was, I'll read this. Bitcoin is now the most stable and predictable monetary system to have ever existed in human history. Once it is fully adopted, we'd be able to plan far out into the future, hundreds if not thousands of years. And because of this, our civilization will not only thrive, but actually survive. Now, that is a profound and and little bit of a, a cheeky statement. <laughs> so, Wicked, do you want to dig into that a little bit and explain why you believe that is true? Hey, just real quick, Wicked. I just want to say the boomer on stage watched that thing and understood what was going on. Nice. I'm proud of you, Peter. Um, yeah, thanks, Alex, for, yeah, for shilling my animation. I appreciate it. Uh, I mean, basically, it's, it's a pretty simple animation. It's just showing the issuance rate, otherwise known as the monetary inflation rate. So how much Bitcoin is coming in relative to how much has already been mined, right, on an annualized basis. But it's just showing that over time. And because of the halving, that monetary inflation rate gets cut in half roughly every four years. And then be also because, you know, hash rate continues to increase and, you know, minor uh, uh, participation kind of is, is, is becoming more stable on a relative, you know, day-by-day -day basis, right? We're not having nearly as many kind of like drop-offs of large swaths of miners or just additions of, you know, or giant leaps and bounds and in minor efficiency gains and this types of thing, the the inflation rate's actually stabilizing uh, quite a bit relative to previous uh, epochs, right? So the, the earlier epochs are like kind of wild, <laughs> um, pretty, you know, unstable. Like if you watch that first epoch in the animation, like things are just fucking just going up and down like crazy in terms of the inflation rate. Even the second epoch is still a little wild. And then by the third one, it stabilized quite a bit. And then by the fourth one, it stabilized even more. And I, I suspect that, you know, this will just get more and more and more stable moving forward as it halves and as the variance kind of tightens with each, you know, coming epoch. And so already, I mean, looking at this inflation rate, I mean, we're talking about, you know, a less than 2% inflation rate. So, you know, it's kind of funny. Like the Fed's doing everything in their power to try to hit 2% and Bitcoin's just cruising along with no one in control, just fucking hitting it like day in, day out pretty much, right? And you've got this crazy system that is totally autonomous and is self-correcting and is hitting the expected inflation rate, you know, monetary inflation rate um, at all times. And then just as expected, right? Every four years, it gets cut in half. 
And I think what this does, like once, once everyone realizes this, once everyone realizes like, oh shit, this is literally the most stable and predictable monetary system ever, ever that we've ever discovered or created or, you know, whatever you want to call it. it it's just, it is the most stable one, no matter what. There's like, there's very little we can do to destabilize it. And then, you know, and then it's only temporary and then it just goes right back to where it was <laughs> meant to be, you know? Like even the China band, right? China band destabilizes the tiny little fucking bump in the animation, and then it goes right back to normal. Um, so there's, there's there's literally nothing we can do to destabilize it, or or very little, you know, we can do to to actually destabilize it. And once everyone realizes this, I think it changes the way that we look at money in the world, and it kind of allows humans to start to project their plans way further out. I mean, if you know that your money is not going to be debased and you know that there is an actual fixed supply of it, then you can actually start to say, well, you know, can I actually afford to pay for this starship that's going to take a thousand years to build? Well, maybe I can. Like I can actually plan for that now because I have enough Bitcoin starting off to do it. And I know things are only going to get cheaper. So here you go. Like there's the investment. It's not going to get debased over a thousand years. And now I can actually start to fucking plan to like, you know, fly to Mars or whatever the fuck you want to do. So, I mean, it's, it's these types of things that I think become possible with Bitcoin and then kind of launch our civilization forward. Yeah, Wicked, I love this point. Um, and it came up yesterday in a conversation at like the kitchen table where I was at at the firehouse where people were asking heavily about the having and how it worked. And I was surprisingly from hanging out with smart folks like y'all able to explain this, you know, without any issue and explain the mechanisms, um, which again, I owe a lot to cafe Bitcoin for that ability and that knowledge base. Um, but the, I love the concept of the stability of it and the fact and, and used having to point to them, to the fact that like instability comes from the circus surrounding and how to tune that out and you know because because their natural response when talking about the having is like okay so this thing's guaranteed to go up in price and you're like oh man i just thought we were making progress let's get off price again for a second but if you want to talk about price sure let's talk about it yes this is stable and and the having is gonna happen uh it's not there's there's no vote it's not up for a decision it's happening um as far as the price going one way or another, these are the destabilizing factors that are like outside of Bitcoin where people are trying to influence people's, you know, reactions and behaviors. And, and it's us who are the instable ones or the unstable ones. Um, and this, this thing, you know, uh, keeps going along. And so that was, a I love that point to help people understand and the having to explain people, even if they can't get off price, you know, how sound of a, of a, of a system this is, because they start asking questions like, well, who votes for the having, like that has to go up to a vote. Right. You're like, no, 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 look, let's, this is great. Let's talk about some of these positives here. Hey, Wicked, I have a question to ask about it. So it, it appears, um, as probably it should be, or should be doing that it, the line is getting flatter and flatter and the range of the two, um, uh, the two inputs are getting is getting narrower and narrower. And I was wondering um, if there is other potential um, 
things going on that, uh, like, for instance, adoption, the, the rate of adoption, if there's other things that are influencing um, this or it's just those two parameters? Yeah, so the only thing that's influencing the inflation rate is the amount that has already been mined and then the amount being mined or the rate being mined. And so, um, you know, as you have a, a larger stock of Bitcoin that's already mined, then the amount coming in is going to be, you know, relatively smaller, right, moving forward. So you're going to get a tighter band just in, just from that alone, um, you know, because you're, you're mining, you're mining less and less as a relative percentage of what has already been mined. Um, and then also as, you know, as, as miners kind of mature, like, and, and the hash rate kind of really gets up there, right, on a global scale, and you've kind of, you, you kind of start to saturate that market, which I don't think we have yet, but obviously, you know, we're, we're saturating it much more than we did in previous epochs, right? We have actual, like, you know, corporations mining at fucking nuclear power plants now and shit. So like, we're getting to the point now where, you know, mining is becoming a, a, a really large and industrial scale business. And I think as that moves forward, you know, we're going to see, you know, maybe, maybe fewer, uh, like orders of magnitude jumps in mining. Right. Um, also like mining equipment is, is kind of seems like it's slowing down in terms of the efficiency gains it's getting right. We're not going from like the GPU to ASIC efficiency gain jumps that we did in previous epochs. So these types of things also add stability to the inflation rate because you know, whenever you get a jump in efficiency, like, like, let's say we did figure out how to make ASICs, you know, a hundred times more efficient, um, you would see like a spike in the inflation rate, at least for, you know, a few months while those new ASICs are all coming online and, you know, while blocks are coming in at, at a faster rate, whatever it'd be like eight minutes or whatever. So you would see inflation rate spike for a bit and then it would stabilize again. Um, but we're not, you know, because we're not getting that large of efficiency gains or that large of, you know, just general hash coming online and, and you know, like we're not like you know, putting a bunch of, you know, we're not like spinning up a bunch of miners at like hundreds of nuclear power plants at the moment. So you're seeing it stable, you know, you're just, it's like less, less, uh, uh, uh What's the word like variance in in all of those things? Does that make sense? There's also just like the scales that I've used in the animation, and I may I may or may not have uh, chosen scales that make things look like they're getting a little bit more stable throughout time. Because you know that's what a good data analyst does is they kind of massage the data a little bit. Oh boy, Dombe. Uh, when you were having that conversation with the guys, uh, curious, did they get it? The whole thing about the halving, having, did they understand the point and what's going on there? Yeah, no, it was, it was a really good conversation. They understood, you know, we got into the mechanics. Of course, again, like, as I mentioned, they're always interested naturally. I'm always, it's like a, this tug of war where I'm trying to get them off price and they always want to get on price. True degenerates, the firefighters, all of us, um, but they got it and talking about the having and 
And then, and then what about the mining mechanics about how halvings have, you know, in the past affected miners and then, and then issues of supply and these other things that are separate from the actual mechanisms of the reward, but they got it. And, and there was a lot of good dialogue and that's kind of part of the, the model we built here is this like slow learning process where as we take like deeper steps, they have a deeper understanding. So they're prepared to weather whatever comes next. So. Um, I'm, ex I'm super excited. I'm actually had a really good conversation with the chamber of commerce yesterday. I was talking to you about that, Alex, and, uh, they're, uh, on board for a, a Bitcoin only committee that we're working on. And so like, again, uh, these conversations are going well, they're just taking time, but I am seeing a lot of good progress and that the light kind of coming on like, oh, okay. All right, cool. That's really awesome to hear because. I feel like there are certain occupations, certain professions that, um, are filled with people who really make our, our societies work. This is what makes humanity work. It, I think it could be argued that there's a lot of people filling bureaucratic functions in various different organizations that are not like, if they stopped doing their job, humanity's not going to end. You know what I'm saying? But there are certain people who, if they stop doing their job, humanity is going to have a really hard time. You know, if all the guys that one of my buddies who I went to high school with, who is also a combat vet, but uh, he's a, uh, an army, um, engineer, combat engineer. And now he does the splicing of all the fiber lines down in South Florida. So these are the guys that basically make sure. The fiber is working when you have all your internet and you're doing your thing, you're on your phone and you're in your little metaverse. The reason you're able to do that is because of guys like this. And if those guys stopped going to work, like people would like walk out of their house one day and just kind of look around. You'd see the whole neighborhood like walking out of the house. Everybody would just be looking at each other and it would just be a bunch of monkeys basically like, what do we do now? Yeah, I, don't, I don't know. And so I'm very... Like, it, it makes me feel good to hear that, Dom. And I think we're going to have, start having conversations with active duty guys that it's going to be very similar. It's kind of a similar mindset. You know, these guys are very practical dudes. Like, don't, don't waste my time. Don't like tell me a bunch of bullshit. They're just not going to put up with it. And, uh, we're starting out with like, I just recently had this conversation with a medic who deploys with Delta and, uh, we're going to start digging into that community. And these people are very out of the box thinkers, like all the, all the CAG guys, all the special operations guys. Um, these are very, these guys don't think like the rest of the military. They, they are trained basically to, to, I mean, it's their nature to find alternatives. <laughs> um, and it's basically unconventional warfare type stuff. So it's going to be very interesting to see how this unfolds. And we're really looking forward to getting that you know, whole community on board and orange build as, as, as we can. Yeah. They're, they're workers, Alex. And like you said, you know, when you're talking, I think about the gar how the garbage unions and the teamsters became so strong. If the garbage, like if the garbage folks are like, Hey, we're not picking stuff up. Like you, that'll be one of the fastest response to a no show thing. Like people are like, dude, my garbage didn't get picked up. Like everything, all my plans have just ended. Everything's over. I'm doing nothing. Like I got garbage piling up at the house. It's over. 
So there are, yeah, those, those functional key spots, um, are important. And like you said, like, uh, these are good, these are worker groups that look for, uh, function. They look for ways to do things in efficient ways. And, and as Wicked was pointing out, Bitcoin offers that efficiency, especially in a time of kind of cloudy, chaotic, um, like just trust us, you know, on the fiat side, I'm talking like everything's balancing out and they can't see it. And they're like, I don't see the mechanism. So there is a lot of opportunity there. And that's awesome. That that's a great mission, uh, for sure. Maybe to that, maybe to that mission, Alex, you should, you should add trying to, I mean, think about Dombe is a firefighter with a deep voice. He walks into a room and he says, Hey, maybe you should look at Bitcoin. And, you know, he's a firefighter, right? And I'm going to immediately assume that this guy is not here to do me harm. Um, you know, it's very disarming. And I think it's the same with, with some of the special ops guys that you're talking about. They walk into a room and they say, hey, maybe you should look at this thing. And, um, you know, you're going to take them seriously as an orange pillar right off the bat because of their background. I think it's a really interesting idea. Have you guys ever been to New York when they stopped taking out the trash? Shit's fucking gross. I've seen pictures. Yeah, any major city. I mean, that'd become a serious problem really fast, wouldn't it? Let's go back for a minute. Let's go back for a minute to the, the having thing. So here are some stats for you that I thought were, were pretty interesting. By the way, here comes American HODL. Uh, okay, so here's the stats. 2012. The Bitcoin, at the, at the time of the halving in 2012, the price, the U.S. dollar price of Bitcoin was $182. A year after the halving, the price, the U.S. dollar price of Bitcoin was 510 Are we talking okay? about price again, Alex? What are we doing? We are, because I find this really fascinating, this pattern. <laughs> and then there's a lot of people like that who aren't you wicked who still think about it in terms of price. And this is the, this is the thing we're trying to get the other 7 billion people on the planet, right? That's the whole thing. They, a lot of them think, look at Bitcoin in terms of price. So this is just a little conversation for people who are new trying to figure this thing out. Like why does Bitcoin maybe make sense and what is all this and why, why is it happening? So wait, let's talk about sats per dollar though. At least, at least do me that. No, I'm going to do, I'm going to read it out the way I've got it. You can convert it how you like in your own mind. If you want to add it in sats per dollar after I, after I say it, you can, you're welcome to do that. So in 2016, the big, at the, at the halving, the U S dollar price was 661. And then a year after that, it was $2,600 per Bitcoin. In the 2020 halving, the price was then 8,600. And a year after that, it was 58,000. Now, obviously, we've pulled back from, since then. And it, this has happened, I guess, in every single one. There's a huge debate as to whether these cycles will continue to repeat. I don't know. Uh, but I'd like to get your guys' thoughts. First of all, uh, Wicked, do you want to translate anything I just said, or shall we continue? No, I didn't have enough time to write that down. So we continue. I mean, the okay. point is, you know, the halving happens, you can get a certain amount of sats per dollar. It's a pretty high amount. And then a year later, you can get like a 10th of the amount of sats per dollar. So you might want to fucking sell your dollars for Bitcoin, like before the halving happens. 
Yeah, I mean, this is the pattern, right? Does it does it continue this way? I don't really know, but yes, it's nobody does. Well, let's talk about it. Okay, so here's my question to you guys: Number one, what is the U.S. dollar price of Bitcoin at the next halving here next year? Like it's coming up in April, Uh, and then where is it a year from then? Okay, so let's not do the prediction game. I mean, no one knows nothing. It's not the prediction game. Like like, higher, Alex. Okay, okay, it's well, a prediction, but it's not a prediction. I'm not all it's a game. It's I'm not holding you guys to this. I literally and, said the prediction game. You said it's not a prediction game. It, okay, said, it's a okay, game, it's a prediction, but it's a it's game. It's a game. Okay. But wait. Okay, wait, wait, wait. So before we do the prediction game, like just to just to clarify what I'm saying here with the havings still having an effect on the price, right? Or on the perceived value of Bitcoin or whatever you want to call it. Um I mean what I what I think is Miners are still dumping a lot of the Bitcoin they mine on the market. And currently they mine 900 Bitcoin per day, right? Which is whatever, $27 million worth of Bitcoin that they are more or less dumping on the market. That's a lot of Bitcoin that the market has to soak up, right? And if the market's not soaking it up, then that's sell pressure. Now, you know, after the halving, that goes to 450. And I mean, it's still going to be significant, I believe. And you can look at your little volume charts. You say, oh, but the volume is in the billions. Motherfucker, that's bitches like rotating, selling in and out the same exact Bitcoin. That's not the actual like true sell pressure. That's just like degen traders that are making a thousand trades a day. You know, that's fucking fake volume. I'm talking about. Okay, so apparently TXMC disagrees with you. I'm going to throw him an invite if he wants to come up up here. Because he actually knows more about this than I do. He's a better analyst than I am. Um, but anyways, uh, <laughs> um, but I think this is going to have an effect, honestly, uh, until the uh, the fees become a larger percentage of the reward than the subsidy. Because remember, it's the subsidy that's cut in half. So once the fees kind of take over the reward, then you're not going to get that have uh, sell pressure anymore. It's not going to be as significant. But until that happens, I mean, I think that this is still pretty significant. That's just my opinion. So the, the view that I have on this, uh, I've given this view before. A lot of people in this room just going to straight up think I'm wrong, and that's fine. Uh, that's what makes the market. Uh, the the having is not going to really have any effect at all, except for, this is my view, except for those people who get hyped by narratives, and maybe some people buy because of that. But the, the people might say that that's what's happened every time, right? But I see a lot of other factors that, that really don't have anything to do with Bitcoin uh, that drive markets higher. And many of those events just happen to line up with where the halvings also happen to occur in Bitcoin. I've had, a, I mean, a whole video about this on my YouTube channel for people who want to go like way down the rabbit hole on what I'm talking about. Um, but just, the, just let's just talk about the, the minor sell pressure thing, because I think you know, that's what Wicked brought up um recently here so so like the 900 coins uh yeah that's whatever you said 20 something million bitcoin um and and then you made the comment well then the volumes in the billions that's just people wash trading and xyz yes and those people get a vote in the price right there are billions of dollars traded in the futures markets every day the derivatives markets um which is exponentially more than the sell pressure from the 900 coins. Uh, And not only that, there are many thousands of Bitcoin 
across aggregated order books right now, passively waiting for price to go past them. And they're always there. And that depth of the market doesn't have anything to do with the amount of coins that are being issued each day by the protocol. And so when the halving comes next year and it gets cut from 900 to 450, you know, the miners will have already been seeing it coming. They're, they're adjusting now, right? But the market depth, the, the, the depth across all the exchanges, that's not going to change because of the halving. Those things yes, don't. Will. No, yes, yeah, it will. They, they Once don't, the price starts running, they're going to pull all wait, dude, of that you're liquidity just, off. You're just giving narratives. I'm giving actual information here. Look, that's not how the you, market you works. Know, you, know that these, work. you know that these walls. And additionally, the people who have start running. on the, I came up here, let me get my soapbox up. The people who have a vote on the price, many of these people, they don't have to own the underlying at all. I, if I had $50 million right now, I could go push the price in any direction I wanted, and I could own zero Bitcoin to do that. I don't have to own one Satoshi, and I get to vote on the direction of price because of the derivatives market. And I think that when we ignore that and we pretend like the spot market and the issuance itself is determining the outcome of price, the depth of the market, the amount of friction required to move a price for percentage in either direction, uh, we're giving a lot of credit to a mechanism that is fundamentally air-gapped from the price itself. So I, I just think there's a lot of holes in the argument, and I have now presented a few of them. So I would, I would say that a lot of what you're talking about is short-term price action. I mean, what I'm trying to get at is kind of more of like a long-term mechanism for, you know, what would be the dynamics between overall supply and overall demand. You know, I mean, I think what's more important than daily volume is net buyers and net sellers. I mean, like, who gives a shit if one person fucking trades one Bitcoin a million times? You know what I'm saying? Like, but we already have 92% of all the Bitcoin, Wicked. Like, all it's, it's out there already. And right. All that and, supply. And, 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 nearly, and nearly 30% of it, right? Or sorry, I should say it this way. Nearly 70% of it hasn't moved in a year. Or and, more. And so 60, like, and, and, like and, and about 70% of it has moved in the last three years, which is when we had our bull run. So that the supply will move again. Let's not, let's not fool ourselves. Well, okay, let's, we'll let's, let's pause. Let's I mean, pause we'll here for just a second. That's not what the trend is. The, the trend for the previous epoch was very different than the trend for this epoch. Illiquid, like illiquid what supply trend? is actually, is actually pinning. Illiquid supply, but the illiquid supply doesn't drive price. Illiquid so supply is problem. a bogus matter. But what it does do is it, is it reduces the amount of available Bitcoin relative it, that's to not that's coming true. in. Yeah, that's not true. But, 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 but okay, but, okay, hold on. I worked in Glassnode. All right. I know what I'm talking about. Illiquid supply is a bogus metric. It's bullshit. It's a heuristic that tries to give you a sense of the probability that a coin might move based on what it is assuming it knows about its owner. And that process itself is extremely flawed. So let's just stop using illiquid supply to tell the story of Bitcoin. Not to mention that in Bitcoin, it only takes a few, I mean, like the you can move it in minutes. It's not like some big deal that you have to go, right. you know, like with gold or something like it's that. It's not a vacuum. You know. It's not a vacuum. And every time we have a bull run, a bunch of the supply moves. 50% of it moves, more than that. So 
ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่ใช่ไม่
what would Bitcoin's price have been if there wasn't so much paper Bitcoin? No, right, exactly. Like that's but that's TX's point, right? Like there are numerous factors that influence any market. You can't just look at the psychology of the, the having cycle alone. That's that's absolutely fair and true, but you also cannot discount the psychology of the having cycle. Because it's probably what gets it kicked off in the first place. Right. And, I mean, and everyone fucking puckers their buttholes, doesn't want to sell, and then everyone fumbles in. So, never never discount the emotionality of human beings. Human beings are extraordinarily emotional creatures, and markets are just that emotion personified in numbers. Totally. And, and I think that part of why Bitcoin was able to, has been able to, be so symmetrical and consistent throughout its cycles is because the underlying climate of the money that was feeding into Bitcoin, the fiat, the economy beneath it, was in a relative stasis of a nonstop kind of unimpressive expansion economically, right? While asset prices moaned because the Fed just keeps kicking the can, kicking the can, kicking the can, trying to avoid an economic downturn. And so, yeah, there's a really consistent pattern in the one thing that represents absolute scarcity during a 15-year period of kind of relative nonstop money printing. And what I think we should just be open-minded to, I'm not presenting this as a truth. I am open-minded to whatever happens. But I think that if we're going to see a period where that beautiful symmetry is threatened and maybe prints a fractal we haven't seen before, because I believe that will happen at some point, then I think that the environment we're in now, which is fundamentally different from the previous 13 years, is the time when that could happen. So I just remain cautious. It, is it fundamentally different in your mind? TX, if you're going to talk bearish like that, you got to say, listen, it's going to break, but to the upside. That's what people want to hear. I, I agree with TX. I mean, I think it's fundamentally different from the fiat side, but it's also fundamentally different from the Bitcoin side. I mean, I think the narrative is slightly changing. There's way less Bitcoin on exchanges. I mean, it's trending down. There's all sorts of things that are kind of pointing in that direction while the fiat is pointing in the other direction. So like, again, I mean, it, there's a lot of factors going into here, but like, Maybe those two things just fucking balance out and we get another fucking cycle. Like, just like before. I don't know. It's going to, it's going to be crazy. It'll be interesting. Can I jump in here? Whenever people say that, you know, the, the cycles aren't going to matter, the having is priced in, I just like my, my mind, I can't understand it because we are at less than 1% true adoption of Bitcoin in terms of people who like know what keys are. and the information asymmetry is still absolutely massive. The majority of Americans still think that the dollar is backed by gold, like let alone that Bitcoin gets twice as scarce or whatever every four years. So um, I think we're really, really far away from the halvings not mattering. And most likely the halvings will stop mattering like when Bitcoin is much, much further along in its adoption cycle. And honestly, they might matter until the halvings are gone, honestly. Like, that's, that's not uh, that's, beyond the, well, the course, possibility. No, that, well, that, uh, that's not true. Of course, a reduction in new issuance matters, right? The question, I think, and that's kind of a, I think it's a little bit of oversimplification. The issue is how much it matters. How much of it is known by the market? How much of an effect can it become? Is there going to be an order of magnitude response to the lack of new issuance? Or, because a lot of it's already been mined and is, is in the marketplace, will you have a diminishing effect? That's the real debate we're talking about. And yeah, I no, I'm, that, I'm, I'm just saying that uh, we are what, three, three halvings in, we're about to go to our fourth one. Like, 
We have no idea how the economics of the having work. Anyone who says that they do, they're going to be proven wrong. And honestly, if you take into account the information asymmetry and how effing massive it is, I truly think that the actual issuance doesn't even matter. It's really more about the virality of Bitcoin. By the way, I could also steal man CK's case here for uh, the having continuing to have a pronounced effect going forward, which is, you know, if you think about the way that uh, Bitcoin external infrastructure uh, is developed, you know, meaning ASICs for right now and later other things, ASICs are all developed around the having cycle, right? Like manufacturers are in a rush to get the new gens out uh, around that time. And, and so you can imagine a world in which, you know, much more infrastructure is connected to the Bitcoin network and the Bitcoin network sort of endogenous clock affects cycles, you know, in the broader business world. You can imagine that world. It's not hard to imagine. I think an idea that maybe I just fundamentally don't agree with um, is, and I, I pushed back on this with, with uh, what's his name? Jesse Myers the other day. I, I, I can't logically understand the argument that the having makes Bitcoin twice as scarce because the, the issuance isn't Bitcoin, right? We have 19 whatever million Bitcoin currently in circulation held by a bunch of people listening right now and a bunch of other people. It is not becoming more scarce except by boating accidents. That's what actually makes Bitcoin more scarce. Yeah, but TX, I, I really think that is a, it's a, is a false frame. Yeah, it's a it's a story that let people who don't know know about Bitcoin scarcity. And like, you know, there were like, what, 100 million crypto participants, like in the broader cryptocurrency economy, according to some estimates last cycle. So that means you're two orders of magnitude off uh, saturation of the globe. So that means that, you know, of the 8 billion people on the planet, 7.9 billion people have never heard the story of Bitcoin scarcity. They have no idea. Right. The having does a good job. Hey, all, also, TX, uh, the actual flow of Bitcoin does get more scarce. Ask a miner. Yeah. What flow? You know, I, I think that there's been a lot of really good stuff. What here. flow? And you guys are in kind of the stock, the flow, bro. I'm waiting to hear. Let Tomer talk. I think the thing that does, you know, people make over overstatements about the having, like, like the comment that TX was just critical of, but what does, what does get cut in half is, and I think I'm picking up on what people were, were saying at the same time that I was saying is that the flow of Bitcoins that come into possession of people who have costs to get those Bitcoins into possession, the miners, and they have costs. That is what gets cut. They, miners have less Bitcoin to sell. And so, again, it, it's a smaller percentage of the entire pool of outstanding Bitcoin, absolutely. But those people who've been holding on don't have a cost to hold, unless they're leveraged and they have to make payments back. But that's, that's a very small percentage of all the Bitcoin that, that's held out there. So the, this Bitcoin that needs to be sold uh, because it's got expenses against it, that's what gets reduced. And although we can all see it coming, and so some people take some anticipatory moves, they, you can't in the long term, price in the happen. We know all the happens are coming in, but nobody's saying, well, I'm only going to pay 31,000 because in 2096, the issuance is going to go down to 0.05 Bitcoin per block. So it still works its way through the system and it still has a net positive effect 
it's all these other things. And, and I think that this is the really big point. It's all these other things that are outside of it that may have some, some tie-in to the story of Bitcoin, which a big part of it is the halvings that ultimately bring aboard more people, which draws in more capital, which causes big spikes to take place. Whether or not the halving continues to be the, the catalytic event that gets that word out or not is something that we never, that we never know in advance, which is why the halvings can never be priced in uh, one way or, or, or the other. So there's just, there's a lot of uncertainty about this very certain thing. It's a, it's a bizarre paradox, but it's, uh, it continues to happen. And, and we do continue to see these cycles. You know, we've only had like three of them so far, but that's all we've had a chance to have. I mean, what you said there is also the reason why the fees matter. Because, you know, when, the, when, the, when the, the subsidy gets reduced to 0.05 and 96 or whatever you said, you know, the fees are probably going to be whatever, more than that. And so that halving of the subsidy is not going to have nearly as much of an effect on the minor flow of, the, you know, the Bitcoin they have to sell, right? That's a great point. Yeah, I think things will smooth out, but it's so far into the future and so uncertain as to how it plays out, none of us can really factor it in, right? So few people uh, expect the trend to continue, which is that fees denominated in SATS terms and the block reward denominated in SATS terms continue to go down, yet buying power of both continue to go up. So, you know, I agree fees matter, but people often underestimate what the block, what, what the subsidy is going to matter. So both trend down in SATS term. Just look at the history. Both trend up in terms of total buying power. By, by the way, just uh, wanted to say, like, for somebody who's been around for a while now, like, to me, this conversation just typifies where we are in the cycle. This is the same fucking conversation we always have nine months out from the halving. And to, when I hear you guys having it, I just go, Oh yeah, we're so back. Like this thing is going to fucking rip just like we all think it is. Yeah, man, we're getting it. We're getting it out there, dude. We're putting out the ether so that everyone just start fucking thinking about it and getting we, excited. We, we all have to go Let's through go. the journey, right? Now here's the, here's the part. And I, Terrence, I see your hand, Dom, I see your hand. Real, real quick. Here's the part that I've been wondering about. So yeah, I agree. There's a certain degree of narrative here, of course. However, there's an old saying, price act, action creates market action, right? This is a real phenomenon. This thing actually does happen. So I'm talking about inequities or whatever else. Price is going up. It attracts attention. People buy in. It becomes this self-fulfilling loop, creates a bit of a bubble effect. Then there's a blow off top, yada, yada. However, this is what I'm wondering about that may or may not be different this time around. You know, the SEC just, where's it at? The SEC just fined a Shitcoin company, what is it? Quantstamp, $28 million for conducting an unregistered initial coin offering. Moral of the story is don't shitcoin, it's bad for you. However, how many of these things are not going to be there to... So, so the cycle is, I've heard people say, people come in, they climb Mount Stupid, they put their a bunch of shitcoins, they get burned. Some of them go away. Some of them go, oh my gosh, Bitcoin's the only thing. And then they stay. It kind of puts Bitcoiners through this, this crucible of understanding and the Bitcoiners who stick around after that are like, <laughs> they become the hardcores, right? So what if there isn't as many shit coins for them to shunt value off into this time around? Or yeah, will that be? Alex, there's more, there's more shit coins. Have yeah, why, why, why would there be, there be less? There's, 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 there's 6,000. I looked like six months ago, there was 20,000. I looked like three days ago, there was 26,000. 
Yeah. In nine okay, months. Okay, so it's actually accelerating. They don't care. They're like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. This, in my opinion, and I know Dom and other people need to go, and I'll shut up after this. This is why it's so important to recognize how early we are in the actual adoption. So, like, if you're less than 1% global adoption, and I'm not even talking about how much money is on the sidelines, I'm talking about people on the sidelines. There's no way that your thesis should be that there'll be less shit coins. There's going to be exponentially more shit coins that should be baked into your thesis. We are still, like, if you think about, like, if you heard of crypto, that's not Bitcoin adoption. Bitcoin adoption is you are holding your own keys and or you are abstaining consciously to hold your own keys. So if your shit's on Coinbase and you don't, can't tell the difference between that and your Robinhood account or whatever, that's, you are have not adopted Bitcoin. I'm sorry. So we're less than 1% adoption. There's going to be more shit coins. That should be part of the mental. Oh, man, yeah. you guys are killing me. Exponentially more shit coins. Ugh. I mean, Dang. there's exponentially more stupid people. I'm sorry. Dude, people have not be... been educated to this. CK's right. There's going to be 100,000 shit coins in like three years. You know what I mean? Like they just do. They just keep making more of them. But one thing you can tell like new people when you talk to them about this, they go, what about all these other coins? You go, listen, Bitcoin's been in the top spot the entirety of its existence, meaning it has 26,000 direct competitors that it kicks the shit out of every fucking day. It just dominates them every goddamn day. You know what I mean? That's a pretty strong metric for Bitcoin adoption. Yeah, but but here's the thing. It's going to be driven. This is why the, the, the caliber of new money coming in is different than the, the money coming into the shitcoins, right? The shitcoins, as you put it out, they're eggs of liquidity for dumb retail. But the bigger players, uh, you know, the Black Rocks, the major entities, those are the ones who are going to drive Bitcoin to 100,000 and beyond. It's going to be major players, not retail. And that's where the money's at anyway. True. True. And a lot of the shitcoin activity is going to happen uh, in the global south, unfortunately. Like, you know, I, yeah. I remember seeing a video of Charles Hoskinson shilling Cardano to the people of, you know, Namibia. And I was like, God, what an unconscionable piece of shit this guy is. And I would expect much more of that type of behavior this cycle. Yeah. And, and just to add to that, like, right, we can we can argue whether the having cycle uh, will trigger a bull cycle. I, I think probably the base case should be yes, it does trigger a bull cycle, but that doesn't necessarily mean it has to have a blow off top, right? I don't think there was a blow off top in the prior cycle. I think that was the first Bitcoin cycle where you did not have a blow off top. 69K did not seem like a blow off top to me. No, it wasn't. It was a bimodal top. And that just shows the progression, how things are changing. Things are different. Okay. I don't know who's next. Terrence or Dom. It's Dom. Yeah, I'll just say, because I know we're wrapping up on the hacking discussion uh, somewhat, but uh, to what Hoddle was saying and what we were talking about earlier with that conversation at the table at the firehouse the other day, that story, that narrative of uh, the having affecting the issuance of Bitcoin uh, was, was something that resonated the strongest with folks, including some folks that are just trying to figure things out for the first time. This concept of, wait a minute, here's something with an issuance that is being reduced when what I'm coming to learn about for some for the first time ever is that the issuance of fiat dollars and, and deficit is just, there is no end in sight and they're understanding that. And so that just resonated a lot. And I think that's a very powerful narrative. 
that has effects far beyond, you know, the, the, uh, uh, adjustments that take place in anticipation of the having already. It's a great selling point. 100%. So Terrence, what do you want to say, man? Yeah. So I think the narrative could blow at any time that, um, that having, having causes a bull run every single time, because we only have like four or five data points, right? There's only been so many happenings. To me, this is just like when Bitcoiners in 2021, the Hopian Bros, were promoting, hey, Bitcoin will never, ever, has never gone below and will never go below the prior all-time highs. And we had Bitcoin crash in 2022 to $16,000, $4,000 or 25% below the December 20, uh, December 2017, 20K high, 16000 20000 so all these narratives will be destroyed at some point. That's what Bitcoin does. Um, I recommend that influencers and people in the audience who are aspiring influencers be very nimble in adjusting their little narratives and not be caught offsides with things that just ultimately don't make sense. It's not statistically significant. There's no first principles behind it. It's a good story. It's working for now. At some point, it'll break. Thank you. If you I, want to be an influencer, you gotta you gotta make really outlandish price predictions, though. That's, that's how right. it works. That's right. I, I feel like a lot run, of it, but then you you come up comical to any the eight billion people who either don't give a fuck or have heard of Bitcoin and think we're clowns and still think it's a scam. Yeah. So and go outside, talk to people that you haven't been able to convince Uncle Joe or whatever. Not Joe Colasari, he's brilliant, <laughs> but Uncle whatever and. Convince these people they think we're clowns. And the more outlandish you are, the more ridiculous you sound, the more of a conspiracy theorist or insane person you sound like to them. So I, I, don't, don't, like, don't tell them that Bitcoin's going to infinity. Terrence, I definitely believe that. I definitely believe that one of worth never going back below the, the prior all-time uh, high. And uh, when, it, when it did occur, I, I was like, oh... I only believe this because I had 100% of my net worth in this asset. <laughs> I really needed to believe this. <laughs> yeah. And then I was like, man, it really sucks to reevaluate my perspective. But I did. I, and I was like, okay, I was being dumb. That okay, was what was really So, so to your credit, and this is, that's a good point. So that's good. But to hold Bitcoin the way HODL did, or even now, right, after we've gone through this bear ride, and there's so many people who have been, the U.S. economy seems stronger for longer and so forth. You really need some irrational kind of insane belief yep. and yep. to hold your Bitcoin. So there's different purposes to these narratives. Sometimes we share narrative. The, the most important thing is like what you want out of life. And if you want to be an influencer and a hodler, then maybe you want to think about being more agile in your persuasiveness because look a lot of people in 2021 we don't see them anymore or when they try to come on spaces like i'm in the chat dms and people are like no that guy's a clown he's a right. all from so yeah no you know you know what it requires uh terrence is just intellectual honesty so you have to be willing to be like hey i was super off base i was thinking a stupid thought and then i got married to my stupid thought and here's why and then if you say that people are generally like yeah it happens you're human yeah, yeah. Our thoughts are often influenced by things that will financially affect us and affect our quality of life to the upside and to the downside. 
We have to be aware of those things when we become market participants, especially as your net worth on paper begins to rise from your holdings, right? And can we talk about the irrational optimism though for a second? Because I do think that that is important. Uh, yes. The problem is, the problem is, like you said, Terrence, when it reaches a level of extreme irrationality, and usually what that means in Bitcoin is taking leverage. So if you've put yourself into a position where if you're wrong, you get liquidated on your position, that is a very bad thing to do because, you know, it's not, <laughs> it's not unlikely that you will be wrong. I've known a lot of Bitcoiners over the last nine years. All of them have been wrong at some point in time, right? And so like, you're gonna be wrong at some point and you wanna make sure that when you are wrong, you are not wiped out, that you still have, like, listen, if you have, it's like something we say during the bear market, one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin, but it's also true. If you didn't get wiped on your, if you didn't get liquidated on your position and you still have the same number of Bitcoin, the fiat price being down is really just a blow to your ego. That's really all it is. And you can make it through that. But if you actually got fucking liquidated or you were holding your shit on uh, Sam Bankman Freed's uh, shady exchange, then yeah, you're fucked, you know? Or if you I bought really Bitcoin like, with leverage and loans. I liked what you said, Terrence, about being nimble and, you know, based, I'm paraphrasing what you said, not getting too married to individual narratives and beliefs, particularly those that have a very small sample size of less than the number of fingers on your hand. Like it's important to just remain rational. And I, and I think that there's, there's a really easy kind of like honeypot kind of trap to fall into if you're joining Twitter or you're trying to become an influencer or you're learning about Bitcoin for the first time and you kind of stumble across this Luan platter of like really basic bitch, super exciting narratives that if you really start to think about them, some of them don't necessarily hold water or they just don't, they're not practical for where we are right now, like infinity over 21 million and all that. Kind of, like these, these kind of things people get connected to in their mind. And they use that to sell content and get people excited about something that they are also excited about. Like, that's fine, but it's just important to, to be able to compartmentalize things that are more of just kind of like a fantasy hope and that maybe you hope that plays out, but we don't have data for it today. And then grounding yourself in the reality of what's going on in the market. People get really caught up in like what the 50 year outcome is going to be and they try to apply it to today. And that's how people can get fucking wrecked. Yeah, I, well, I, I do. I'll sorry. Oh, real, real quick, Joe. I was gonna say I I will do a mea culpa for my generation of thinky thought boys. I I re you got to give us a, a little bit of you know grace here because we really thought that if we just believed like super hard that we could send Bitcoin to a mill, <laughs> we kind of got a little high on our own supply. You know what I mean? So now I think we've all been kicked in the dick six point one five times, and we're all much more rational than we were, let's say, two three years ago. Right. I thought we did good work back then. You know, since we, we, we've kind of moved on from talking about the, the having and everything, and, and I, I had one like last comment I wanted to make on if that's all right. Uh, and I think because we, you know, the, 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 co the comment, the, the belief that I interpret from hearing folks is that the having is, is what helps to kind of catalyze the bull, right? It brings in height, it creates a supply squeeze, all the things, right? And, you know, maybe that's true, maybe that's not. But the thing that I would offer to suggest that maybe it's not all just Bitcoin, um, another asset that has nothing to do with it, that bottoms and tops in relatively similar timelines is the Dow Jones. And it doesn't give a shit about the halving. 
but it bottoms and tops in relative close proximity to when Bitcoin does. And additionally, so do yields. So like the lows in Bitcoin uh, historically have all come around relative lows in the 10-year yield, which is, again, something that doesn't give a single shit about Bitcoin. And then as yields begin to rise, as equities begin to rise, Bitcoin also begins to rise. They all kind of do that at the same time. And, you know, ironically, two of the halvings were within about a month of QE beginning as well. Like maybe that's not a factor. Uh, so I, I think that when I, when I make the argument that we should look outside of Bitcoin for things that move Bitcoin, uh, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about, stuff that existed long before Satoshi ever discovered this and wrote the code. And, and Bitcoin kind of just slipped right in, my view, slipped right in to an ongoing cycle. And it has outperformed everything. And it has a high beta to the existing traditional markets. But yeah. they're all well, to each other. What you're talking about, right, is, the, is like the Michael Hall stuff, the global liquidity cycle. Right? And he and he charts yeah, this yeah. out. He, he actually talks about Bitcoin and and how there's this correlation between Bitcoin and and uh, rare exotic watches. Right? They they tend to bottom and uh, and peak in very similar periods driven by the global liquidity cycle. So is it really happening, or is it uh, the global liquidity cycle? I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's all this stuff is unknowable, right? We can just have a, a thesis and a hypothesis, but ultimately, you know, we have to keep our minds open that you know that that this is a giant experiment. Right. We're all participating in a huge experiment that has never occurred in the history of mankind with something as infinitely scarce as Bitcoin. And in an experiment, right, you should look to the data, reserve judgment and not get wedded to crazy narratives. But, but Joe, since since uh, since rare watches, except for the absolute rarest, have gone down in price significantly just recently, does that mean that Bitcoin has uh, uncorrelated to watches now? No, they're still correlated. I watch this, too. Pun intended. Uh, the, the Rolex market. And the Bitcoin market are almost a one for one. Wow. All right, let's do this. This has been a really fascinating discussion. I want to thank everybody for, for participating in it because I've learned a hell of a lot through it. Um, and I just value having guys like TXMC and Joe and um, American Hoddle, Tomer, who've been around for a while, Terrence, to just kind of, you know, give some lowdown. And also, Wicked, obviously, we started the conversation with, uh, with the issuance, the schedule, and uh, the, that it does matter at the end of the day. So let's do this. American Hoddle is here as the featured guest. So I'd like to focus a little bit on him. I don't know your story, man. And a lot of these guys, maybe they do. Maybe you're tired of telling it. I'm going to ask you anyway because I haven't heard it. Uh, and I'm guessing that there's a whole new generation of, of Bitcoiners who are learning about this whole thing that haven't heard your story. So would you mind like yeah, talking sure. about it? Sure, man. Um, so <laughs> I, st I was the, always a young, dumb libertarian. Always. I wrote a paper on seasteading junior year of high school. So I've always had uh, certain proclivities. Seasteading is retarded, by the way. But I thought it was great when I was a junior in high school. Um, I was like, bro, we can do new governments on the sea. Isn't this amazing? It was not amazing. Spoiler alert. Uh, Around 2012, 2011, late 2011 or early 2012, I heard about Bitcoin on the Joe Rogan podcast, actually from comedian Duncan Trussell, who's a regular guest on that show. And he was talking about it in the context of the Silk Road and, you know, online drug marketplaces. And they have this crazy currency called Bitcoin. And I was like, what? 
drug marketplaces? That sounds awesome. And so I went online and I did some research into the Silk Road. I think the price of Bitcoin was like seven or eight dollars around this time. And, you know, I was like, okay, well, how does it work? You got to do this to buy. Me and a friend were trying to buy DMT on the Silk Road. And I did a bunch of research into it. And ultimately, I decided against it because I was like, sending drugs to yourself through the mail is a felony. Uh, And so I was like, yeah, no, pass on all that. I'm not trying to do that. And, you know, I backed off the idea, never ended up buying Bitcoin, never ended up using the Silk Road, looked into it, but then got kind of skittish about it. Um, You know, fast forward to I'm at the bar circa uh, 2013. So like when the first bubble of Bitcoin happened, my same buddy who I had tried to buy drugs with uh, came to me at the bar and was like, dude, do you remember that Bitcoin thing? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, it's worth $1,300 now. And I was like, you're fucking kidding me. And I, I remember going on my phone, just reading article after article about Bitcoin and like where everybody thought it was headed. And everybody was saying it was 10, 20 grand. And I knew enough about markets to know that I had, I had fucked it and that I was never going to get in. And I was like, fuck, it's sober. I, I missed my time to buy. This was my chance to be a millionaire. I'm an idiot. And I spent the rest of my night just like, you know, nursing my beer, like ignoring the girls we were with, just being like in my feels, you know, like I blew it, man. Uh, fast forward to like, it's Christmas time a year later, 2014. I'm at the casino with that same dumb friend and, uh, we're gambling, we're playing blackjack and I ended up winning big, you know, at the time. So I turned like $200 into $5,000 and, you know, I, I left the casino and I still felt like gambling, but I knew enough. I was a seasoned enough gambler to not go back to the casino. So I was like, okay. What's a crazy, stupid gamble that I could do on the internet? And then Bitcoin popped in my mind. I was like, oh, shit, I wonder what the price of Bitcoin is. I checked it. And luckily, the price of Bitcoin was in the low 200s. And I knew enough about markets to just be like, okay, well, if it's in the low 200s, if it just goes back to 1300, then I'm going to fucking crush it. And so I just threw the whole five grand into Bitcoin uh, without even knowing anything about it. I didn't know about the 21 million cap. I didn't know about the difficulty adjustment. I didn't understand how Bitcoin worked. I didn't even know what the fuck a Bitcoin was. And then like two days later, I had this voice in the back of my head being like, you really need to look into your investment and do your diligence and stop being a fucking dumbass. So I started looking into it, went down the rabbit hole, had the experience like a lot of us have. And I was like, holy shit, this changes fucking everything. Then I became like a super serious hodler stacker uh, all through 2015, 2016. <laughs> this is the... If, if people have heard it before, sorry, but this is when I sold my car. I got a shitty moped, uh, Chinese moped called the Tao Tao 50. Uh, its max speed was 35 miles per hour downhill with the wind at your back. And I, I drove that or I put 3000 miles on the thing. I drove that thing around for like eight months, like uh, during summertime in the desert, in Nevada, getting fucking burned alive, scorched, wearing flip flops. I crashed it like two times. My shoulder still fucking clicks because of that. But I was able to save a lot of Bitcoin. People, it was a great hodler story because everywhere I went the entire summer, people were just making fun of me left and right, you know? Uh, And at the time, I was like actually doing financially pretty well because I was stacking a lot of Bitcoin. The Bitcoin price had doubled at this point. It was like $500 then. And like I was doing, I was doing good. (laughs) Everybody thought I was like a poor moron who was riding this scooter because he was like, I don't know, on the brink of homelessness or something. And so anyway, I, I like went forward, 
uh, the 2017 having happened or the 2017 bull cycle happened. And then, you know, we rode through that crazy roller coaster. 2018, 19, I was like, you know what? I need to like, like, I'm still wildly optimistic about this thing. And I need to share that optimism with everybody else. And that's when I like actually started, you know, because before I had just been lurking on Bitcoin Twitter, just reading other people's thoughts. Uh, I really didn't have enough to contribute. I think it takes like three to four years to actually have a deep enough understanding of Bitcoin to meaningfully contribute. So it took me, yeah, about three years. And then uh, 2018, 2019, I was like, I got to share what I know with everybody and just share my optimism, uh, encourage other people to stack because I was about to stack even harder. I was like, it's time to go all fucking in. Bitcoin's not going anywhere. Like we're, we're right. We're so fucking right. Uh, we're only going to be more right. You know, yada, yada, yada. So that was when I became American HODL and started just you know, tweeting any crazy thought that came into my mind, uh, encouraging other people to stack, kind of turning stacking into a game, breaking some Bitcoin social taboos at the time. Uh, and then, yeah, going forward, you know, 2021 happened and like it was a great bull cycle. You know, it was a little bit disappointing, but still shows we're on the right path. And then got my dick kicked in really fucking hard circa 2022. And I was like, oh, man, I never thought we'd go this low, but fuck it. Here I am. And uh, now I'm here with you guys today. That's the whole story. <laughs> man, thank you for sharing that. It was genuinely awesome. Like I was literally uh, rolling over here with the freaking moped story. <laughs> the, the moped was, the moped oh, was my God. Because uh, people were making fun of me. You know, I remember this one particular incident where I went to a friend's baby shower and showed up on the moped like with my gift like for the baby bungee corded to the bath <laughs> I look I look like a total idiot like I look like I was uh you know Harry and Lloyd from Dumb and Dumber like it was it was ridiculous right so I understand why people are making fun of me but this one guy who had a brand new F-150 in the parking lot was like yeah you, you got your little moped blah 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 I was like yeah tell me about your F-150 is it lease he was like yeah it's a lease and I was like oh really and then I started digging into his financial life. This guy had a, he had a timeshare he'd never been to. He had at least F-150. He rented an apartment. Uh, his refrigerator was financed. You know, the list goes on and on. His net worth was oh, negative. Right. And at, the and at the same time, I have like a half a million dollar net worth. And this guy's making fun of me. And so to me, it just like furthered my conviction in, in Bitcoin and what I was doing. Because like the world was just backwards and the world was wrong. And everything that was normal was actually deeply broken. And to be the weirdo on the moped actually was the correct thing to do, even though it didn't look like the correct thing to do. Uh, so yeah, that, that one always sticks out in my mind. But I had to eat a lot of shit from a lot of people. And I'll tell you this, if you're like experiencing that now, they never, they never come back and say, hey, you know what, you, Hoddle, you were right, man. I used to think you were a fucking retard, but it turns out, I was the one who was retarded. They never do that ever. Never they happens. Just uh, just, they just look at their shoes and they're just going, oh, good for you. You know, you're lucky. You good. <laughs> right. Right. That's all you have to look forward to. Nobody will ever say, hey, you were so smart. You saw it ahead of time. Nope. Not going to happen. We show as lucky as you. Funny so a stuff, guy that, dude. A guy that says that uh, uh, he never received drugs in the mail because that was illegal. Sounds like a guy that. Uh, Sounds like, sounds like what a guy who had done that would say. <laughs> it does well, sound like it. The statute of limitation no, is up. I, I was one of those guys. I got a shit ton of weed from South Africa. 
mm. off of Silk Road. So come Bro. get me, bitches. You know how many people spent $10 million on weed? A lot of people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Very I'm one of those idiots. <laughs> I ended up, by the way, uh, Peter, I did end up sourcing DMT in town and then smoked it. You know what I mean? So like, it's not like I didn't do the drugs. I just sourced them in town. My weed came in fucking dry sealed bags with the fucking stems on them. It was, it was the most ridiculous package I've ever received. Oh, did it have seeds too? Like the old Columbia? It, it had all the seeds, all the stems. Yeah, it was, it was also the cheapest weed I've ever bought. Do you remember how many Bitcoin you spent on it or is that too painful? It's painful, but I think it was, it, it might've only been like nine because it was so cheap. This is towards the end of, of, you know, Silk Roads. Nine Bitcoin is like $270,000 today. So brutal. It's only a, Lam- only brutal, a Lam- man. Only a Lamborghini that you spent on some weed. Every oh, time, every time a good weed, bro. American Hoddle, any, every time a weed shit. pops in his pipe, he's going to think of that. I know a lot of friends who have that same story. So it's not just wicked. That was a yeah. lot of, a lot of Bitcoin OGs have that story. And to be clear, I'm not a Bitcoin OG. Like, the, yeah, it was, it was it, the friend of mine is the Bitcoin OG. And I was just like the distributor who was like, oh, cool. And then I just helped him distribute. So, but I never got into Bitcoin until much, much later. I really love these stories. All right. Uh, what do you want to do, Otto? Like, is there anything specific that's on your mind that you want to talk about? We got about eight minutes left. We could also do some AMA stuff if you're open with that. Sure, man. Yeah, I don't know. people asking questions. Whatever. I would just like, I, if I'm uh, doing like a soapbox message, I would just encourage people to, you know, just remain optimistic. And, you know, try and be 1% better than they were yesterday. Stack what they can. Don't take leverage um remain rational and sober during the bull run it's really you know every time i tell myself that this next bull run i'm gonna be super sober super reasonable not gonna get high on my own supply then the bull run comes along and i'm so goddamn euphoric like it feels like i'm on fucking cocaine just mainline directly into my veins you know and i just can't help myself right but what i've learned about myself through the hobbling journey is that even though I'm susceptible to greed, very susceptible to greed, I actually do a better at um, minimizing fear than other people. So I'm better at the bottom of the bear market than I am at the top of the bull market. And I think everybody has one or the other, right? So like, you're either going to be better at the top of the bull or worse at the top of the, or worse at the bottom of the bear. I think that heavily depends on your, the size of your stack. Because if, if you've got, you know, a small stack like Peter and I, then you're pretty euphoric at the bottom of the bear because you're like, you're like, holy shit, I might actually reach my goals. And that's the place to be euphoric. Absolutely. Hoddle, that euphoria is just all that scooter hate just releasing uh, <laughs> into the world. <laughs> He's got some scooter PTSD. But you know what, brother? I you really come on here I and talk it. about it anytime. I wish I had kept the scooter. I, I unfortunately sold it to some meth addicts for $50. I really wish I still had it. It's a piece of history. It's so funny. You know, so someday, you know, when you, when you have the kind of uh, capability to have a beautiful penthouse someplace, maybe sometime you have that scooter in there. 
as, as the centerpiece. <laughs> oh, man. Terrence, you got a question? Uh, yes. Um, how did you get laid when you had a scooter for two years? Luckily, I was late. Luckily, uh, I was already married at that time. Um, how wait. did she not divorce you? And does she have any Dude, sisters? My poor, my poor. 6.15. That's how we'll say Terrence. My poor wife, Matt. There's this classic, <laughs> there's this classic Reddit post. I'm sure a lot of you have seen it of this woman who's like, I used to think my boyfriend was smart, but lately all he does is talk about Bitcoin. And he's putting all of our money into Bitcoin. And he sold this car to get into Bitcoin. And I often think that that post was written by my wife with just enough details. <laughs> you know? It, uh, is, she the, is she the one that, that doesn't just look at her shoes and go... <laughs> no, ev everybody... Every, nobody believes... Like, okay, the people that are left in your life after you actually succeed, they all go, oh, I, I always believed in you. But you remember that they didn't. <laughs> yeah. So you have to just give them that. You're like, yeah, totally. You did believe in me. No one believes in you. Thanks, man. But they That's weren't all they stayed By the way, before I was American Auto and I was interacting with all the other Bitcoiners, I was just giving my wife frequent ear beatings about the difficulty adjustment or whatever. So she honestly enjoys all the spoils uh, of our success because, God, she had to endure a lot of painful lectures from me about Bitcoin. Good for her, man. Good for her. Good gal. BJ Dichter, do you have anything? Morning, everybody. Yeah, I just wanted to... Oh, you're in the Matrix. Say, uh, what? I'm in the Matrix? No, we can hear you now. All right, yeah, I just want to mention that I love the fact that Winkett said the cheapest weed he ever bought was $275,000. I think that's... <laughs> <laughs> so good. Oh, the last story, brother. I think I used to go in your spaces in Clubhouse long before, uh, long before Twitter Spaces. Was that you, man? Yeah, totally, man. Yeah, I was like running Bitcoin Clubhouse with, with uh, my my friend, uh, Bitcoin Tina, who, uh, rest in peace, he died in a tragic That's right. like daily. paper hands accident. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but you know what? Like, I think it's really good to see you in this room. Like, you were doing this long before Twitter spaces existed. You're one of the rooms I would go into regularly just because I was just learning. Matrix for me. Yeah. But I think the message that he's sending from the matrix is that he appreciates American Hoddle for doing what he did. Like he was the original sort of OG like get in the get in the group and chat and talk about it and like like hold it down and like that's awesome because it's you know I learned so much now because the guys like him did what he did and it's just like the cycle continues you know where we have the other seven billion people to go now yeah that's the by the way that's the thing is you um you show up like like you know Terrence was talking earlier about Bitcoin influencers or whatever. That word is cringe, but you know, whatever. All of us who share our thoughts about Bitcoin publicly and shit. I, I think that the thing that you're supposed to do in Bitcoin culture is you step up when it's your time, you share what you need to share. And then if it's time to fall back, you fall back, right? And it's sort of like this like constant rotating group project where there's always new guys and new faces and they, they speak to their peer group and they're important at their time. And everybody has their little moment and then you just recede. And the people that we've seen 
kind of Icarus themselves have been people who, when it was time for the curtain to close, they didn't want to get off stage and they thought that they were the main attraction. They were the main show. It's like, it's not about you, man. It's, it's about Bitcoin. And if you think that your audience that you built talking about Bitcoin is going to stay after you've sold your Bitcoin and you stop talking about it, they're not. They all care about Bitcoin. You're not that special. You're just another dude describing this new phenomenon. So quick story, there's a um, former Merrill Lynch chief economist who I hated because he cost me money, both personally and professionally. David Rosenberg, or Rosie, he's an idiot, perma-bear. And one time, I think around 2011 or something, he became bullish on, some, on the U.S. economy. And his readers hated him, his followers, unsubscribing, cussing him out, telling him he was a moron. Like Hoddle said, it's not about you. It's about Bitcoin or in the case of these delusional perma bears being a perma bear. Yeah, like Dr. Jeff, who's in the audience, he had to deal with a lot of that, the cycle, but he was right. And, you know, he got vindicated. I, I think audience capture is a very real phenomenon and it's very easy to tell the audience what they want to hear, right? And, you know, sometimes when you're newer to, you feel like you haven't earned the right to be heterodox. But I would encourage everybody to share whatever they consider to be an unpopular opinion. Like if you think about it and you think it's true, but you're scared to say it, then that's the thing that you really need to be saying. And if you're wrong, you'll be corrected by the Internet. Like, how do you find out you're wrong? Post whatever you think and let the Internet correct you. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> For sure. That's a real thing. All right. Uh, that's pretty much it. We're at the end of the show. American Hoddle, thanks for, for being here. Uh, as the guest, this was so fun today, man. I haven't had this much fun in a while. This is one of the funnest shows we've done in a, in a, in a bit. So thanks to everybody for participating in it. Learn a lot as usual. And it's just, just the reminders to just be humble and not freaking think you're all that in a bag of chips because yeah, it's awesome. I really appreciate it guys. Okay. A couple of quick things tomorrow on cafe Swan private macro special host, John Har. Um, what else we got? Hard money is dropping today at 1 p.m. Eastern. The topic is in hard money investigates hardware wallets, other tech for holding the most censorship resistant money in the world, which is Bitcoin. We did drop the Bitcoin veterans podcast earlier this week. So go check that out if you want to. That's it. That's the wrap. You've been listening to Cafe Bitcoin, the place for your morning news, preferred hanging out for some of the smartest minds in the industry. Also a pod up on Fountain, Spotify, and Apple. If you can't catch the live show, thanks to Swan Bitcoin, the sponsor of the show. My crew, Aunt Peter, Seth for Life, Wicked, Producer Jacob, and all the regulars who hang out here on the, on, on the regular, teaching people about this bright orange feature. I appreciate all of you guys. Uh, we had a really cool DM from Zippy. He goes, I've been listening to the podcast since the beginning. Stay on the mission. It has helped me maintain my conviction during a 70% plus drawdown. FTX blow up, etc. Thanks to you, Aunt Wicked Peter, and the entire crew. Man, I appreciate that so much. Like, this is the reason that this is the kind of fuel that keeps us rolling on this thing. Anyway, this is what we call get on the mission. I love all you guys. Everybody go out there. Have a great day today. Crush it.